I would like to acknowledge the land of the Wurundjeri people on whose land this podcast was recorded and that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am Emma Kulti, your familiar stranger for today. Welcome to the podcast brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for Public Awareness of Science and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Today I'm speaking to Vicky Forsch. Vicky is Professor in Design Ethnography at the School of Information Technology at Hampstead University in Sweden. She is an experienced researcher and project leader in collaborative projects across academia, industry and cities. Her research focuses on how people learn to live with emerging technologies with an expertise in tailored visual, sensory and design ethnography. So today we will be talking about design ethnography and the future of automated mobilities. So here it is, my interview with Vicky Forsch. Hi, Vicky. Hi. How are you doing? Oh, I'm completely jet lagged. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm sorry if I just lose, lose it a bit, but yeah. I'm here. No worries. We're so, so grateful to have you here in Australia, and I'm glad I could snag you uh, for this interview. Um, so just to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I think you said a couple of things there that are important for this pod, I guess. I'm a professor in design ethnography, which is not a very common title. Um, but we we picked that one because it really wraps up what I'm doing. So I'm a design researcher with a really big interest in learning. Um, I'm actually a teacher from the start, teacher trained. I've done a lot of research in what we in Scandinavia called pedagogique, but never actually in the school setting because I'm more interested in, in learning in everyday life situations. And then it's ethnography and that's part of my career as a social scientist. I always used anthropological perspectives in um, what I do. Anthropology is a very interesting perspective uh, or sorry an approach when you talk about learning especially when you're interested in informal settings when I worked as a teacher in school before I started my PhD training and all that years ago um, I was actually more interested in in what the the children did outside of curricula you know what they did in the between the lessons or the lectures or whatever so um, then that was when I realized that um, doing a PhD uh, study would be more interesting to look at. Okay, so what are the learning strategies that people bring with them from their cultural context, from the social context, into those kind of more formalized settings? And that was where my interest in emerging technologies really grew because I was doing research with young people and I realized at that time how much they, uh, you know, the mobile phone cameras became part of. You see, this is quite a bit uh, a time ago. <laughs> but uh, I got really interested in, in how the mobile phone cameras became part of how they make sense of the world. 
and the sharing of the photos through different social media. And then um, I've always been interested in interaction design through my interests uh, in uh, studying uh, interactive exhibits in museum settings. And then uh, then I moved on. And I, I, if you look at my, my professional career, it looks like I don't know where to go and where I've been because there are bits and pieces of everything there. But the, uh, the, the common thread through the everything is that my interest lies in how people actually adopt and and uh, appropriate uh, new technologies into their uh, life strategies. So m after doing all the research with uh, in museum settings and science centers, I had a project on self-tracking as one example, uh, how people uh, use self-tracking technologies uh, to you know to to get on with what they were doing in their lives and how actually different that was from how uh, what these devices were designed for and that is another big interest in in my work is that uh, to have a look at the underlying um, ideas behind design uh, what they're designed to sort of to uh, to do with people or how people would change things they do with technology, and uh, the fact that they actually don't. <laughs> that they uh, use, uh, usually improvise around technology, so it becomes part of what they're already doing. And, uh, of course, the, you know, the interesting lack of, of um, knowledge around these things in tech development is interesting too. So um, the last years I've been, last maybe eight years, I've been more and more focusing on future mobility. And I, that is where I start to work more with uh, industry partners. Can you talk to us a little bit more about these research projects in automated mobilities, particularly those that involve the industry stakeholders? It might be eight or nine years ago, um, I met, by coincidence, I met a user researcher at Volvo Cars. And I talked, we started to talk about what we worked with. And Volvo Cars at that time, they started to move more and more into um, human-centered design, thinking about the families and the people using their cars and, and what the cars start to mean to them and these kind of questions. And then I said, well, we should do a project together because I'm really interested in, in how new technologies, it could be, a, you know, new uh, emergent car technologies could be part of how people move around. And that was the start of, of a long professional relationship with uh, the UX designers and developers at Volvo Cars and my group at Hunts University, which is a group of design re researchers and social scientists. And... Um, by that time, there was a big hype around automated mobility, self-driving cars, a big, big hype. Actually, at one point, I, when it, around 2010, people actually thought they would just take 10 years to implement self-driving cars on our streets. Uh, now they laugh themselves at the, you know, the optimism around these things because obviously it's, <laughs> it's a tricky thing to implement these kind of technologies into public spaces. So we had a number of projects uh, running um, where we, uh, one that was called HEAD, which was human experiences of autonomous driving. And we followed, started to follow families. And this is interesting because it was the first time where 
Volvo Chorus actually was part of founding, paying for projects where we took this particular ethnographic perspective on things. And we, they actually paid for two PhD students to come into our projects. And we worked with families and they got these kind of technologies to, you know, to use. They got to borrow it from Volvo and then we follow them around and they talked about it and how their life world sort of expanded together with, <laughs> with these technologies. And some really interesting insights about what these technologies actually could afford and what kind of possibilities actually could open up which was not about the more naive idea that if we have self-driving cars, people will actually work more on their way to work, which is a complete naive idea. <laughs> and uh, so our work has then expanded into a number of different projects. And at the end now, um, we also included uh, cities, public transport stakeholders, because we realized know just after a couple of years that we need to be a number of different stakeholders including the people uh, who are affected by these technologies to actually create um, you know to approach these kind of wicked problems wicked design problems that are you know that these the technologies are embedded in yeah so the the last project the aha it's a series of two projects where the first project called AHA1, AHA stands for a human approach, was more about actually creating a trustful um, situation or context for stakeholders to work and talk together. Uh, it took one and a half year just to bring them to the same table on the same ground. And uh, what we did was that we used the uh, ethnographic work we did as the common ground to stay in. And now we've heard the stakeholders tell us that it was so good because it actually opened up a sort of a neutral ground where we talk about people as people, not as particular users or citizens um, like the cities would do. And, uh, and it opened up new uh, conversation themes uh, to discuss and see how these different stakeholders actually could move in an aligned direction. And then the AHA2 project, uh, we got funded from a strategic innovation program because our primary goal was to create a methodology that actually put this into practice. And we created through that project, well, the methodology and the tools, the workshop and communication tools needed. And uh, we did loads of field work in two areas, uh, particularly uh, uh, chosen by the city partners because these are areas that are usually not asked uh, when it comes to these technologies because it was inhabited by people who would not be uh, possible premium customers. Um, and then uh, we combined uh, the insights with co-creation workshops together with stakeholders, brought those things together to, sit to back to the citizens. And then at the end, we ended up with uh, uh, these kind of... Uh, bringing together stakeholders' tools and also to design concepts. Yes, that was the story of the recent projects. We need to just go back a step because uh, for a lot of our listeners, they actually don't know what design ethnography is. Could you give us kind of a succinct overview of what exactly is design ethnography? Right. I can say what the principles are for the AHA2 project. 
there is one really important principle which is tailoring that we tailor an approach that brings together different stakeholders but also brings together and uh, continuously develop the method as we move on together designers ethnographers and the different stakeholders involved so the tailoring part is really important it's an interventional uh, approach in that way too because uh, we distribute the responsibility, we learn together and we use those learnings in iterations. And that's a design word that comes into the, sort of moves into the anthropology, you know, like uh, perspectives where um, in anthropology, we're usually more interested in the now, what happens now, right? Uh, but in design anthropology or design ethnography, we also futurize on these insights. So we think about, okay, so what, how can we iterate on this into something that could be put into action? And then uh, there is also this idea that we want the things that we do to move beyond the project. So it actually has a continuous life afterward uh, when we finish up on our part. Well, there are a number of different principles, that, but these are for me um, the pedagogical principle that we learn together and co-create things as we go and the uh, bringing it forward sense in the project are for me the most foundational principles and that makes it differ a bit from from just uh, you know from anthropology as a discipline uh, but still there is this really important um, flavor of anchoring people's voices into tech development, for example, that we really bring in realistic perspectives. Because uh, like automated technologies, automated mobility is hijacked by ideas, utopian ideas on the one hand from the tech developers, and then pretty dystopian ideas from more social scientific or you know anthropological perspectives. So uh, what design ethnography does or design anthropology does is to bring that into a really more realistic viewpoint <laughs> uh, to have a look at that technology, what it actually creates and anchoring those stories into the tech development. It sounds a bit, when I say it, it sounds like, well, yeah, you know, what's the difference? But actually it's a big difference, you know, what we've seen when we we work with stakeholders that one example it's easier to talk about examples than principles just to make it clear what we do is that at the end of the project uh, all our stakeholders realized that they had one thing in common even though they believed that they were really different the city uh, you know urban planners and 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 the more engineer like uh, developers at Volvo but, and that was that all of them just realized that had they had missed out of the social life in mobility, which really brings up, you know, okay, so our approach actually helped them to understand that mobility is much more than just moving from A to B. It's actually entrenched or embedded, entangled into the social life of people's everydays. And uh, just having do done that really... Uh, points out the power of design ethnography into you know being an active agent in change and th that change making principle is also very evident in all our projects and uh, we wrote a book in a group uh, it was just published it's called design ethnography it's published by Rutledge 
and I was so happy to work with five colleagues here at, um, in Australia that are connected to the research uh, uh, emergent tech lab at Monash University. And uh, there we draw out the, uh, the principles and the practices of design uh, ethnography and all the projects that we have, you know, we have loads of project examples in that book and it really demonstrates the changing powers of this kind of approach, how it can be part of change. Really, really powerful. And it's honestly one of my favourite books of this year. And we will include a link to it uh, in the podcast as well for everyone. Just to add, um, my favourite thing with that book is it actually has a unicorn on its front cover. I can I can just rest my case now. I've done everything I can in my career when I've written a book with a unicorn on it. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it is my favourite thing about the book as well. Uh, and at the launch we had here in uh, in Melbourne in the CBD, we had little temporary unicorn tattoos that we could adorn ourselves with. And that was very lovely. <laughs> uh, so just for our dear listeners who aren't as familiar with the emerging technologies world, can you unpack what automated mobilities might mean to say to someone who is not in the field you're right so automation is something that we are uh, dealing with now everywhere in our life and automated technologies for example ai driven technologies that learn together with us when we use it and automated mobility is all these tech features for example in cars nowadays that help you park help you keep the distance to the car in front of you uh, we have had these for a number of years I mean just um, well now what's it called in English that keeps your pace on the road oh the cruise control thank you cruise control <laughs> that is an automated technology in itself and it's been around for some time but now the cars are more and more connected to AI services and that helps you uh, navigate. For example, there are um, navigation apps that sort of, when you use it, it learns usually how you, you travel, and then they start to give you advice on how to move through traffic, for example. So it's like assistance, digital assistance all over the place. Uh, your phone is probably telling you stuff already. If you have a smartphone, moving around with it, and it starts to tell you, give you particular pieces of advice. For example, if you park your car somewhere, it tells you where it is. Uh, or it tells you how, when you have to start to move to work, because it tells you, oh, so there's a lot of traffic on that road, you should probably go in another direction. And all these things are starting to become ubiquitous. You know, we don't even know that they're, they know what we're doing. Because we carry these devices without, you know, thinking about it, that it actually counts how many steps you take, and then after a while it might tell you that, uh, well, you've been sitting for a long while now. If you have that feature on, that's what usually what we talk about: automated technologies and automated decision making. That there is actually an algorithm that gives you advice in taking decisions and actually even take decisions for you. Like, for example, in traffic, if you have a brand new car with these kind of technologies installed, it can take the decision how fast you move so you won't get hit by something. These kind of, so actually there's a handover of decisions. And 
of course, what is happening now is in energy situation at home. When you get an electrical vehicle into your home energy network, what happens, you need to have some kind of service that helps you to charge the car when the electricity is cheapest, for example, which happens in Europe now because we have really rising energy prices. So we need to have this kind of small AI assistance that puts your dishwasher on at night so you wouldn't put pressure on the electric grid. <laughs> yeah, so there's this kind of a negotiation going on uh, where uh, these kind of technologies help you or assist you or prevent you from doing stuff. It's interesting just reflecting on the, the scoping report we just published uh, looking at industry visions around automated technologies and mobilities in Australia. And for many years, like between about 2015 and 2018, the discourses around tech kind of centred autonomous vehicles over here and electric vehicles over here as these kind of emerging technologies. And then as the years go on, they slowly, slowly start to overlap and mm. suddenly it's autonomous electric vehicles. And that's, of course, why would you have anything other mm. than that? Mm. Um, so that's going to be another kind of layer to the tech, to this, you know, these digital energy autonomous futures that we're yeah. working towards. We have actually a new project now going on. It's uh, Well, it's not a new one, but it's in the middle of it. And where we interview families around their smart charging practices because in Sweden uh, electric vehicles is really on the rise. In the EU uh, there is actually a decision now that after 2030 uh, there will only be electric vehicles for purchase. That is where we're heading at and then there's this idea within tech uh, development of smart charging and the smartness, it's completely reliant on technologies in these visions, that it's smart, that there is an app that helps you to, to charge the things, you know, when, when it's the best for you, as they think. And then we, so we thought, well, let's check, let's double check if this is actually smart. So we went out into families and, and um, interviewed them on their smart charging practices at home, which includes the phone, car, uh, they have solar panels on the roof. And they, they have created these kind of, of uh, house networks, energy networks. And obviously, uh, the technology is not smart in itself. And so what they try to do is to sort of overrule or over, override uh, what's in there, what they can do. Because uh, one thing that was really uh, stood out as really not a very smart feature is that you need to be a tech nerd to be interested in in interested enough to understand how these things work. So what the families did to prevent only one person to know how to uh, sort of put the lights on in your home, for example, <laughs> which is a very unsmart feature because it's so complicated to get the lights on through the assistance. So you need to wait for your partner, whoever knows how you do it, to get home to get the lights on. That's not a very smart feature. So um, we added up, ended up with a design. Oh, that's another feature of design ethnography is that usually we end up with some kind of design implications. So one of them is that you really need to think about multi, you know, multi-user functions so that it's it's possible for many people to use it on their own 
the way and tailor it for their families. Because uh, we saw so many cases of these things where it's only one person who actually knows how the the uh, devices work at home. Makes it really, uh, you know, stupid. <laughs> so we are needed in the development just to prevent the whole smart city idea to become the most stupid thing we ever done. <laughs> the potential is definitely there for oh, it to yes. become very oh, yes. stupid and overcomplicated, like the idea that just turning your lights on and off mm. is a special uh, you know, technical skill you need to have. Now. Yeah, and imagine when it becomes connected to some kind of AI function that tells you, no, you can't have your light on now because the grid is overwhelmed, so you have to wait. And maybe you even can't override it. You have to sit in the dark. Probably that that might also be a good thing because <laughs> that would help us to create new practices really fast. <laughs> uh, needed practices for sustainability reasons. Uh, but obviously there needs to be some kind of a balance there. So is this research kicked off yet or are you kind of still in the planning oh, it's still. Oh, it's, it's very much on. It's on. So yeah, we're going to present um, that work actually here on this trip into Australia. So just to take it back a step, because in all of these projects, it sounds like you're dealing with a lot of different stakeholders. And I know um, for our audience, we have a lot of PhD students who are perhaps thinking they won't move into academia, they will move into more industry-related employment. So what kind of advice would you give for working with multi-stakeholder you know, projects? Because you're dealing with people with various different mm. agendas and interests and knowledges. Yeah. Well... I think one of our primary roles actually, except for bringing in, you know, like these kind of insights is to be the intermediary, to be the communication tool between different stakeholders. And one skill that I really would encourage students to take on is to think about how can I make my insights possible to be understood in that setting? That is a question that I've been working quite a bit with and you know experimenting with filmmaking storytelling creating um, games or tools or way to uh, make your insights into something that is not only accessible but also I wouldn't use the word useful even though in industry settings it's really important to to think of that perspective and why I'm not saying it here is because there is this idea that if you make your insights useful then it loses its critical stance but that's not true actually then the other advice is to don't be afraid of approaching industry because of that that you think that you will lose your critical independence actually my experience now for all these years working with industry is that they're really why they would approach a social scientist or an anthropologist is because they need those kind of critical questions. They need to understand the problem. And that is why Volvo continuously work with us, is that one of our really you know, key insights into the projects are the reframings of the grand narratives, which is our expertise, right? We know how to do that. We have the tools, we have the theories, we have the, the traditions of doing it. 
And just to deliver that in a way that actually helps them to, to rethink what they're doing, that's our role. So I hope that can inspire students to actually move in that direction. No, you're not expected to bring in insights so that they can sell more cars, for example, in the car industry. Your role would be to help them to be part of creating a sustainable development by actually helping them to see the problems with what they think is true at the moment. And uh, they know this nowadays, at least in Europe, where I have my, my experience, is that the industry partners, all the funders, all the funders in Europe, you can't come in with an application that hasn't got these kind of critical perspectives anymore. They wouldn't fund found it, which is a big incentive for, for industry to just bring us in. And just to find ways of present and, and talk about these kind of reframings of, of grand narratives is a big challenge, but so inspiring. It's easier to make a change if you actually work together. But of course, we need also to stand on the side and point at things and tell, you know, a broader public that this is not going to be a good thing <laughs> but uh, also at the same time point out if we reframe this issue then it might actually be part of you know uh, making the planet a better world so i hope that will inspire students to just think of what role you could have and what kind of skills you could develop you know like these kind of communication skills to be that kind of agent that was so hopeful and so inspiring and I wish I had heard that when I was, you know, straight out of the gates, finished my PhD. <laughs> it's a new time now. You can do these things. When I was starting my PhD, it was still a big issue if you would work with industry at all in social science. That would be like selling yourself, right? And I was in these debates and I was just, but I got so frustrated by it because I was completely uh, agree with mo many of these, you know, questions and discussions. But at the same time, was I was frustrated not being able to be part of changing things. And that is not every student's career, <laughs> but there might be some students who wants to do that. And and now, 2022, it's actually quite possible. And there are loads of people you can look at to get inspired by. And for example, Sarah Pink, who is the director of the Emergent Tech Lab, she, her career is just amazing in being part of that change. So um, if you want to be inspired, read anything that she's written and listen to her talks. Yeah. Just on a personal note, I'm so grateful to be surrounded by so many inspiring women and anthropologists and ethnographers. It's absolutely wonderful environment to be in and to be doing all these kind of creative, communicative um, practices. Like you got to see my film yesterday that was, you know, directly because of Sarah's support um, and her kind of practices as a documentary filmmaker. You mentioned before about using games for communicating insights. And I think uh, just before we wrap up, mm. um, if you could talk a little bit about um, how you've used uh, games with stakeholders to communicate insights. Yeah, very shortly. Um, <laughs> there is a web page. We have presented the games in the AHA2 project. So it's uh, AHA, uh, and I think it's a two, it's a number two, AHA2 dot hh.se 
uh, where we have we will present. They will be downloadable there too. The games we've created in the AHA project. So uh, we had like uh, three different components in the project. We started off with uh, creating the insights uh, from ethnographic work, and then we um, uh, developed trigger materials for workshopping and co-creating with our stakeholders. And from the, the result from that is something that we called uh, transformation tools that creates that sort of transform the insights into something uh, that other people, you know, from other projects and from other settings can be useful for. So it's like a scaling uh, tool. And one tool that we have is a common ground game uh, where we um, we did a game of presenting three different themes that was really important for people when they talked about future mobilities. And then we created questions around these for stakeholders to think about. And then we asked them to um, bring out a service that a mobility service that they are actually developing at the moment and put that in the center and then just uh, move around in these themes and questions and ideas and discuss that service from these perspectives. So it's a game with actually dices and, and stuff. So just to get the conversation going. Uh, and that is one way to make, uh, you know, to put the insights into action, actually. It's been really appreciated. And what it does is that you can start somewhere. <laughs> because our goal with the game is that they will end up understanding that they don't know enough of the communities they are affecting. So they need to go out there and ask them questions. So um, the game is actually not there to end the discussion into a solution. It is to open up uh, a particular mobility service or idea. Uh, so they will start to ask people things, which is you know important to know before they start to implement it. So yeah, that's that's one one of the tools in the Heart Two project. We also have a friction guard game, card game, which has sort of the same flavor to it, but a different approach. And there are some other things too there, but it's all on the website. Mm. We'll include a link to both the website, to the games, and to the to the book as well. Mm. Um, with this with this episode, mm. brilliant. Well, I think unfortunately that's all we have time for otherwise I could just sit here talking to you for hours um, it has been an absolute pleasure Vicky thank you very much for for jumping on and agreeing to do this oh thank you for inviting me it's a pleasure being here thank you That was it, me and Vicky Forge. Today's episode was produced by me, Emma Kulti, with help from my fellow Familiar Stranger, Matthew Fung. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page, patreon.com, The Familiar Strange. Not The Strange Familiars, which is another fun podcast, just not ours. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. 
If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of the program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. Special thanks to Nick Fairley, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe. Thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. Until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>